The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3, where we're continuing our study that we began two weeks ago. Moses at the burning bush tonight, Exodus chapter 3. Last week we considered, Pastor Walker considered chapters 1 and 2, the prologue to the book, so to speak, which sets the stage, as we saw. The prologue covered 400 years in a short span. And now the rest of the book covers one year or less. So you can see there's a difference. We pick up the story with Moses about to encounter God at the burning bush. Hear God's holy word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh." that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, 
The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elder of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. This is God's holy word. Well, we are beginning the story of God's great deliverance of the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. And we might ask, what kind of servant did God choose to use? He chose Moses, and we all think of him as a great man. But We see something this evening, and we'll see more next week, that Moses did not think he was up for the task. In fact, Moses was a weak servant, as are all of us. You think about great people in history. Let me read to you some descriptions of George Washington preparing to become president. This is after his success with the Revolutionary War in that interim time before the Constitutional Convention and finally the Constitution was passed, and here are some highlights of his journey from Mount Vernon to New York City, which served as the first capital of the United States at that time. Listen to him arriving in Philadelphia, met by local dignitaries, and asked to mount a white horse for entry into the town. When he crossed a bridge over the Schuylkill, River, it was wreathed with laurels and evergreens, and a cherubic boy, aided by a mechanical device, lowered a laurel crown over his head. And as he entered Philadelphia, he found himself at the end of a massive parade with 20,000 citizens screaming his praise. Well, it didn't stop there at Trenton, where the famous Battle of Trenton took place as he approached the bridge that the small Continental Army had held for a night, the spot where they had stood and faced the British and the Hessians, he saw that the townsfolk had erected a magnificent floral arch in his honor and emblazoned it with the words, December 26, 1776, and this proclamation, the defenders of the mothers will also defend the daughters. 
And as he rode over the bridge, 13 young girls, robed in spotless white, walked forward with flower-filled baskets and scattered petals at his feet. He really didn't like all of this, but it got worse. As he prepared to go across the Hudson from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, to New York City, he found himself put in a special presidential barge, listening with fresh paint constructed in his honor and equipped with an awning of red curtains to shelter him from the elements. And to nobody's surprise, the craft was steered by 13 oarsmen in spanking white new uniforms. And behind him was the huge flotilla of boats, many of them carrying musicians and women singing and serenading him as he crossed the Hudson to New York. And there were thunderous acclaim of cannons roaring and the massive crowds of New York City gathered on the other side. And so he entered New York to be president. But what was going on in his heart through all of this? He confided to his diary at that time that the sounds, quote, filled my mind with sensations as painful, considering the reverse of this scene, which may be the case after all my labors to do good. What is he saying? He deeply feared that he would fail. He went into the presidency with all kinds of foreboding because he thought his reputation was established by the Revolutionary War, and now it was likely he was going to fail. He knew that he was a weak man in many ways. Well, here's Moses in a similar kind of situation, but you could say much worse when you think of being called by God to set the people of Israel free. We want to look at our text tonight under three headings. First, God revealed himself to Moses, God promised deliverance, and God commissioned Moses. So, first, God revealed himself in the burning bush, verses 1 to 6. Here we see Moses in the wilderness, shepherding his father-in-law's flocks, and he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. It is, becomes the mountain of God. Now, it wasn't the mountain of God up until that point. And we see in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. Here was Moses, not at a chance encounter of some kind. God, in his providence, brought Moses to this place. And maybe the bush was a wild acacia bush, the common thorn bush of Sinai, or many, possibly one of the other uh, hardy desert bushes of the area. But the remarkable thing about this bush, as Moses stops and beholds it, is that there was a flame of fire. It burned, but it wasn't consumed. Although it was burning, it was not burnt, we would say. It it did not turn into smoking embers. It was not even charred. It simply kept burning in a miraculous way. Clearly, he saw that it was a supernatural sign, a, a physical miracle that communicated spiritual truth. And as we read and see God appear to him here and speak to him, we, we see that it's a revealed truth about the very being of God, about God's power over creation. Is this physical manifestation of God, God's glory and splendor revealed in in part here in this burning bush and in this flame, but especially his God's self-sufficiency and self-existence, 
that he does not get his power or energy from anything or anyone outside of himself. It reminds me of our verse. One of the reasons I picked this hymn is because the second, the second verse speaks about the wondrous love of God and um, the, uh, the, the great love of God, self-fed, self-kindled like the light, changeless, eternal, infinite. But above all, the burning bush speaks about God's holiness. And he goes on to tell Moses that he's standing on holy ground. This is the first time in Scripture that the word, that word holy is used in reference to God. God is holy, and Moses realizes this. Holiness fundamentally means separation from everything else. Separation, in, in a sense, for us, holiness is separation unto God. For God, it means that God is set apart from everything that he has made. He is not part of the creation. He is, he is other. He is divine. He is set apart. Holiness, of course, includes the idea of righteousness, but it also includes this idea of infinite distance between God's deity and our humanity as created beings. So in, in Hosea 11.9, God can say, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Or 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy like the Lord. And certainly it connotes the sense that God is separate from all that is sinful in any way. So the idea of God's holiness comes out here, and, and we're told in verse 2 that this is the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a flame. And later in verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. So it identifies the angel of the Lord with the Lord and with God. It wasn't an angel of the Lord, it was the angel of the Lord that we read about on a number of occasions in the Old Testament, and most take this to be the pre-incarnate Son of God meeting Moses in the burning bush. And so Moses is commanded by God, do not come near, and he's told to take off his sandals God is transcendent in his holiness, so it was not appropriate or right for Moses to come near. In fact, we read that Moses rightly hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Even, uh, even with this theophany we would call, this physical, limited, we would say, manifestation of God, even with this, God commands him to take off his san- Sandals, And in the Middle East today, um, taking off one's sandals is still a sign of respect. It was a way for Moses to show reverence to God. Moses at the burning bush shows something to us of the plight of human beings in the presence of God. Here's God in the, in the burning bush. We are created by God to worship him, to have fellowship with him. We're created by God to gaze at his glory. But because of our unholy condition, because we are fallen in sin, it is no longer safe for us to come into the presence of the holy God. This is God revealing himself. 
And how do we as human beings try to solve this dilemma? Well, many religions try to solve it by trying to be holy enough to be acceptable to God. In a sense, we exaggerate our own holiness. We set up a list of laws that we think we ought to keep or try to keep and obey religious rules to be hopefully good enough to come to God. But Romans 3.10 says there is no one that is righteous. No, not one. We can't try hard enough. We just can't overcome our sin. We have to be without any sin to come to a holy God. Or other, others might approach this problem by simply downplaying or ignoring the truth or the idea of the holiness of God. That's what the culture and societies of the West have done. We've made God into our own image as somebody you just, you know, who's, who's a nice guy, who's a nice old man in the sky, and hopefully, you know, I'll get to play golf in heaven when I go there, that kind of thing. In other words, we've made God to become mostly like us and have eradicated any sense of the holiness and the otherness and the transcendence of God. But we know, as the Bible unfolds before us, we know that the answer to this dilemma of the holiness of God and our sinful state is that God solved the problem by becoming a man through Jesus Christ and by providing a way of salvation. And so in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, we can read, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus Christ has reconciled us in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What a blessing. What cause for rejoicing. How should we respond to a God of such awesome holiness? Left to ourselves, the only response would be fear and trembling, dread. But through Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us again and again that we may draw near because of the love of God to us in Christ. And so Moses has a glimpse of the holiness of God But that's not where the passage stops. Secondly, we find that God promises deliverance. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And so on, God describes promised land that he's bringing them to. It's an amazing thing we find here that the holy God of the burning bush has an unbreakable love for his unholy people, the people of Israel and us. God revealed himself to Moses in order to maintain his personal saving relationship, his covenant love with the children of Israel. Now, we saw this description of God hearing and God seeing and God knowing at the end of chapter 2, at the end of the prologue. The prologue ends with this highlighting that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
And here that theme is picked up again in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 and 9, that God remembers his covenant and he hears his people's cry. And now it says in verse 9, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. It's interesting that in verse 7, God speaks of them as my people. What a beautiful phrase. God's love for them is so great and his covenant relationship with them is so strong that he specifically identifies with the children of Israel as my people. In Hebrews 11:16 it says that God is na- is not ashamed to be called their God. What a blessed truth that is. Our God is full of pity and compassion for the people he loves. And What he says of the children of Israel, he says for each of his children who know him by faith, I am concerned about your suffering. And God's relationship with his people we see is a personal relationship. God calls Moses by name, Moses, Moses. He speaks of himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows his children's sufferings and oppression. It's a personal relationship, and it's a saving relationship we see. He says, I have come down to deliver them. He speaks of God in human terms as if he needs to come down. We say that's an anthropomorphic description of God. It's using human terms to describe God's saving purposes. It's a saving relationship. And we read, as we read through the book of Exodus, we'll see that God was saving his people from something, from slavery in Egypt, and he was saving them to something, to the promised land, to fellowship with himself. The tabernacle was going to be built by the end of the book of Exodus, and they were going to worship him by this means and have fellowship with him. He was going to be in their midst. God was planning their full salvation, we would say. God not only knew about the plight of his people, but he was planning to do something about it. The story of Exodus is the history of how God rescued his people, working out their whole salvation from beginning to end. And now we know that that story of salvation is completely fulfilled in the New Testament in what Jesus did. This great Old Testament deliverance is the pattern for how God always rescues his people. And the God of the burning bush is the same God that we worship today. He has not changed. Whenever we worship him, whenever we come to him in prayer, whenever we fellowship with him in our individual lives or in our corporate lives, we are standing on holy ground There's a hymn that we sing at this Baptist camp we go to every year. We sing it every year. We are standing on holy ground. It's a beautiful hymn that talks about we we sense and we feel the presence of the Lord as we worship him, praising the God of Abraham and trusting in him. So the burning bush is a great encouragement for us to worship and to pray, knowing that we can draw near. John Calvin writes about this with these words. He says, we should reflect that the bondage of Israel in Egypt was a type or a symbol, we would say, a type of that spiritual bondage in the fetters of which we are all bound until the heavenly avenger 
delivers us by the power of his own arm and transports us into his free kingdom. Calvin goes on to say, Therefore, as when God rescued them from the intolerable tyranny of Pharaoh, so all who profess Christ now are delivered from the fatal tyranny of the devil. What a beautiful picture this is of the full salvation we have in Christ. And just like the Israelites, you and I are not just saved from something, saved from sin and death and hell, but we are saved to something. Like the children of Israel, we are saved to a new obedience. In the book of Exodus, we're going to see the law given and explained and expounded to some degree and And the people are called to live according to the law of God. So we're called to live in new obedience to the will of God. And they're called into the tabernacle worship, to fellowship with the living God, to worship him and to daily come before him. him. And they're, they're called to enter the promised land, which signifies the new heavens and the new earth. One day, God is going to make all things new. And they're called above all, for the glory and praise of God. We're going to be hearing that in Ephesians 1 in the next few weeks about how we are called and chosen and loved in Christ to be for his glorious praise. And so God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. God purposes to deliver the Israelites through Moses. And then finally, we want to consider God commissions Moses to share with him in this task, to be a co-worker with God. An amazing thing. Notice at the end of verse 9, God says, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, he says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What an amazing promise to use a human agent for his purpose. And it's a surprising turn here. If we had never read this text before, we might expect God to say, I have seen, I have known, the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and now I'm going to deliver them. And Moses, I don't need you. I'll just go do it. No, that's not what God says. One of the paradoxes of God's sovereign grace is that he uses human beings. He uses flawed, sinful, weak human beings like George Washington was weak, like all of us are weak. He uses human beings in his gospel purposes to carry out the extension of his kingdom in this world. If you remember, Moses had tried to save the people of Israel once before, 40 years before, And it had turned out to be a disaster. He had to run for his life. It did not go well. But God uses the events of Moses' life to prepare him for ministry. And now, apparently, the time of preparation was over, and God was commissioning Moses to lead his people out of slavery. Yes, in the end, it was God who truly was the one who delivered his people people, but God raised up Moses to be the human agent. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine being called by Moses to 
go back to Egypt where he had failed, where he had been running from his life, and to do this? This principle of God using human agents is seen also in chapters 1 and 2. We didn't take much time to look at it last week, how God rescues Moses using ordinary people. It was women, essentially, that God used, although Moses' father we see acknowledged here as well in chapter 3, but God uses, used the Hebrew midwives to save Hebrew boys. God used Moses' mother, who hid Moses and then put him in the reed basket. He used Moses' sister Miriam and what she did. He even used Pharaoh's daughter to save Moses and to rescue him. And God uses ordinary people like you and like me as well. God uses, I heard one commentator use this word, uh, that through the uncommon faithfulness of common individuals, God works. And so God commissions Moses as his human agent. And in this way, we could say you and I as believers are called as well. We're called in two ways. We're called for salvation, but we're also called to service. God has work for us to do. In fact, the word vocation is from the word calling. And whatever our particular calling may be, it is a high calling because it is given to us by the Most High God. As one person writes, whether we are preachers or postmen, whether we are bridge builders or home makers, God has work for us to do. And our calling is typically one of the primary ways we serve God and others in our lives. We serve in our calling, our vocation. We serve certainly in our homes and in our church and in our community as well. But God has work to us for us to do, and he is the one who commissions us and empowers us to do that. It's like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority is given me in heaven and on earth. And if you had never read that verse, you might think he's going to say, so I am going to spread my salvation around the world. All authority given to Jesus Christ. But what does he do? He says, therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations and so on. He chooses to use us. The work of salvation is God's, but he chooses to use us to spread the gospel. Now, Moses is commissioned, and he seems at first enthusiastic or ready to accept. He, in verse verse 4, he says, here I am. Seems like he was initially ready, like we think of the young Samuel when the Lord called him at night, and he said, here am I, Lord. Or Isaiah in Isaiah 6, here am I, Lord, send me. It's that kind of here I am. A readiness, apparently, but this was before, of course, God had told him what he wanted him to do. And he begins a series of questions or objections to in chapter, the rest of chapter 3 that we'll briefly look at here. And then in chapter 4, there are three more, and they get worse and worse until he finally just, the last one is, Lord, please send someone else. That's not really an objection. That's just a denial. Um, But he begins with this question in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Moses was, you might say, rightly 
questioning his ability to do this. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world. I was trying to think of an analogy. It'd be like World War II, like God calling one of us, go to Nazi Germany and rescue the Jews out of Nazi Germany. What? We would have, who, my Lord? How would I ever do that? That's the kind of feeling. You know, we know the end of the story, so we know what's going to happen here, but don't we identify with what Moses was saying? Moses would have said, I'm a mere shepherd. I haven't been to Egypt for 40 years. How am I going to liberate the entire workforce of Israel from their slavery in Egypt? And probably he's thinking, well, would the Israelites even remember who he was? And even then, would they follow him? What stood behind this? Well, maybe a sense of genuine humility before God, before the magnitude of such a task, but also a sense of his weakness that I'm sure to some degree spilled over, as it would for all of us, into a lack of trust in God, to unbelief to some degree, an unwillingness to trust God and God's plan. In other words, Moses had been given by God a commission a command, a direct order, so to speak, Uh, and uh, whatever might have been his sense of inadequacy, God was calling Moses to overcome his reluctance and to trust in him and to obey his calling by trusting in him. And when we think about Moses' question and how he keeps on this way, can't we all say that we would have responded the same way? Who am I, O Lord? And God says in verse 12, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. A very gracious promise from God. What's the key to it here? I will be with you. And then he gives the sign. There's a lot of discussion about what this sign means and everything, but clearly it was a sign that Moses had to take by faith because the fulfillment of the sign wasn't until Moses and the people of Israel had gotten back to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and worshiped God there. So it was only going to be after the task was done that the sign was fulfilled. So Moses had to take it by faith. And no wonder then Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's wrath. And God responds very graciously, I will be with you. And then look at verse 13. One more question Moses raises. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? This question is not who am I, but it's who are you, O Lord? And notice how God responds. He is very gracious and patient with Moses. The God of grace gives Moses a further word of revelation about himself, about who he is, this wonderful word that tells us something about God's being and who he is, but it also cloaks it in mystery. It's almost like you can't plumb the depths of what he says here. This answer is full of meaning, and let us look at what he says in verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. And we would notice in your translations how the word Lord has all capitals. Most English Bibles translate the four Hebrew letters for God, the divine name. They translate it this way as the Lord in all caps to distinguish it from if they use the Hebrew word Adonai. It's another word for Lord, but it's not the name of God. And that's translated Lord, but with small O-R-D. So the word Lord is repeated a number of times here in Exodus for the first time. Uh, It appears in Genesis as well, but this is the first time that Moses apparently understands and knows the divine name. And um, you should know that there's a connection between the phrase, I am, I am that I am, and the I am, he says again in verse 14, and that's a verb form, and the noun form, Yahweh, the Lord, is related to the word to be, I am. It's all, in a sense, a play on words. God is explaining his divine name, I am that I am. And commentaries write a whole lot about what this means. But if you go down to verse 16, you see where the Lord says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he adds the divine name. There are many titles of God in the Old Testament, but the divine name is Yahweh, the Lord. In older English translations, it was translated Jehovah. And again, we see it later on in verse 18, the Lord. He goes to Pharaoh. So God reveals who he is with this phrase, I am that I am, and relates it to the divine name. And all the commentaries say that God is again expressing something about his self-sufficiency. I am that I am. Matthew Henry says that the best person on earth can only say, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Only God says, I am that I am. All of us are dependent on God. God is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. He needs no power from outside of himself. One commentator says it this way, an endless abundance yet to be explored and experienced. In other words, God is saying, Moses, I want to eradicate all doubt from your mind about my Ability to carry out my promise. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. I am God. There is none like me. And later on in verses 19 and 20, when he is describing how this deliverance is going to be carried out, he tells Moses what it's going to be like. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so God says, so I will stretch out, and you'd think he might say, my super abundant mighty hand. If a mighty hand isn't enough, no, just God will stretch out his hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that he will do. And after that, he, Pharaoh, will let you go. What is God's answer to Moses' inadequacy? Verse 12, I will be with you. Verse 14, And this is who I am. 
What an amazing answer God gives. God is the all-sufficient, all-powerful, holy and loving God of salvation who keeps his promises and carries them out. Here's God's amazing answer to Moses' great weakness and inadequacy and to yours and mine as well. The call to follow God and to serve God always comes with the promise of God's presence. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8. Or here's another way to think of this wonderful promise that's revealed here. The biblical preparation for service is always that we be found in the presence of the Lord. The biblical preparation for service is always that we be found in the presence of the Lord. And we're going to see that when Moses' first attempt utterly fails and everything goes wrong. God's going to appear to him again, going to reveal himself to Moses again and lift him up patiently and carry out his saving purpose. Or to put it in other words, service begins with knowing God. Service begins in the presence of the Lord, spending time with God. What an application to all of our lives. Don't we want to serve the Lord? There's lots to do. And yes, we have to do and we have to work, but don't skip over the part of letting it originate in God's presence. But I would like to speak a concluding word of application from what we've seen here. We've seen that this chapter sets the stage for the great deliverance of God's people that God will bring about. God reveals himself and reiterates his promises to his people And he commissions Moses and assures Moses of his presence. Clearly, God will bring about his salvation. But again, to remind you, all of this points ahead to an even greater salvation that God brings about through Jesus Christ. And I ask you, have you received that salvation, that great deliverance, that greater deliverance by trusting Jesus Christ? It's so interesting in The Gospel of John, chapter 8, the religious leaders are disputing with Jesus about who he is and whether he is the Christ or not. And in verses 56 through 58, Jesus is speaking back to them and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the text says, So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Probably many of you have seen that before and know that. All the Jews hearing that would have known Exodus chapter 3. Jesus just said, Before Abraham was, I am. It gives me chills to think of that. Can you imagine Jesus, the God-man? And what happens? Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here is Jesus in the temple of God declaring he is the I am. And the Jews want to stone him for blasphemy, blasphemy, for claiming to be the great I am. And it would have been blasphemy for anyone else in the world to claim to be I am, but not for Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the holy God come in the flesh. And so, have you seen your bondage to sin? It's a bondage that's very real. 
It's possible to be in bondage and yet to be completely comfortable in that bondage and to hardly even know it's there. That's the way it is with the bondage to sin. We humans are very used to the bondage to sin. It seems normal, at least in many of its forms, the everyday, ordinary forms. But when you begin to see the God of the burning bush, the holy God, the God who is holy other, but also the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, the true I am, the God-man, then you know that there's a way of deliverance, a way of salvation. May you enter into that great salvation if you have never done that by trusting Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for being the lover of our souls, that even though you are so great and so holy, that you have provided a way, that you have done this, that salvation is of the Lord. We bow before you. We praise your name. We cling to Jesus Christ, our gracious Savior. We ask these things in his name. Amen.